Welcome to Establish the Edge. I'm your host, Mike Leone, back with Ben Gretsch for the seventh edition of our off-season projections podcast series. In today's episode, we're going to tackle the AFC South and take a look at the Colts. You know, is Jonathan Taylor worthy of a top five pick overall? Is Derrick Henry worthy of a first round selection? His ADP is early in the first round. And also look at, you know, some of the, the target leaders in the AFC South, Michael Pittman, Christian Kirk, Brandon Cooks, and how we feel about them at their ADPs. Ben, let's start right away with the Colts who, from a play calling perspective, we're pretty in line. We're both expecting them to call pass plays at a little bit higher rate than they did last year. Last year, they were about 55%, I believe. We both have them around 57%, which is an increase. And I think it's something they've talked about, which is that they relied on the run perhaps a little bit too much down the stretch. And you know, some of that had to do with Carson Wentz. They get Matt Ryan in there. But I was looking, even this team a couple of years ago with Philip Rivers, throwing, I think throwing the ball more for them still means like a bottom 10 pass rate in yeah. the NFL. Yeah, you said their numbers are up, but 57% still a very low called pass rate. I, I my, my thought was, look, they brought in Matt Ryan. They're going to be probably a little bit more competent at quarterback, and, and that'll probably help. But this is a Jonathan Taylor team. We know that. Absolutely. We each have them running a little bit below league average in terms of play plays. Ben has them a bit closer league average at 63. I've got them lower at 62 and um, not a huge discrepancy. I can see it going a few different ways, kind of looking at their historical play calling last year. They were like mega slow paced. I had them as the slowest paced team in terms of play clock stuff. But I think part of that was, Again, like they got, you know, some of these teams, they just get caught in like something that's working, which is running the ball a ton. They had a quarterback that, you know, if you listen to the comments since he's been gone, it sounds like uh, they didn't really trust him. And basically every locker room that once leaves seems to have comments of that nature. The year before that, their play calling in terms of, uh, or they're, they're snapping the ball, the play clock when they snapped the ball was much closer to league average. So it's a little bit difficult to tell where they are going to be at pace. Um, That's what I put in my notes. I was splitting the play volume from the Wentz year and the and the Rivers year somewhat, but they've kind of just bounced around from these different quarterbacks. Yeah, and then as far as what that means for the quarterback Matt Ryan, we've got him around 270 fantasy points overall. You know, it's tough to see any semblance of real upside for Ryan because the team's not going to throw a lot. They're not even going to throw an average amount, and he's not going to run, and that just you know, doesn't leave you with pretty much any outs whatsoever. Yep. <laughs> well put. Yeah. yeah, there's really not much <laughs> yeah, Ryan. It's I mean, basically two QBs, like, maybe take him late, but he doesn't even have like big play weaponry. So yeah, I mean, there's not a lot there. It's yeah. Like a pretty deeply. Best ball. Maybe <clears throat> you, you do some stacking with him if it works out, but yeah, ultimately uh, a guy that's very back into the quarterback ranking just because there's not meaningful upside and it's just not worth paying for any floor at quarterback because anyone who's playing has a floor at quarterback. Most interesting thing to talk about is Jonathan Taylor and whether or not he's worth the 101 or the 102 in drafts because he's, I think, especially in casual leagues, he's the consensus 101, but I, I've got him in my personal rankings more like the 104. And Adam, 
uh, Levitan and Evan Silva from Established a Run, they did their first round podcast. And basically they had him fourth overall with the idea that you know, there's a top tier. He's in the top tier, but he's more the back end of the top tier than the front end of the top tier. How do you uh, envision Taylor in your drafts, Ben? I mean, he comes out really strong in my projections. He does come out lighter than McCaffrey, I think. I mean, I wrote about that over my newsletter early this offseason. I think that's sort of to be, to be expected with their receiving roles. Um, and, and we'll talk about McCaffrey in our final episode. But um, I can see still taking Taylor 101, not just because of McCaffrey's injury stuff, but just because he is sort of, you know, the ascending talent. He actually was impressively pretty close to Naheem Hines in target share, just not – not far behind him at all. I think he was like four targets behind him for the season. They both played all 17 games. Um, and I think people are concerned about Hines on the receiving stuff, but Taylor was very explosive. His his yards per reception were better than Hines. Hines is a good receiver in his own right, but his yards per reception, his catch rate was also higher uh, on, on the reception. So his yards per target were quite a bit higher. He actually had more receiving yards than Hines, despite uh, it's six fewer targets. So, I think he has a little more receiving upside than people probably give him credit for. The tough part for his profile is just, you know, the the high rate of big plays. Like, backing that up is tough. I said that all throughout Derrick Henry's peak. I was usually off him and was typically wrong. But how many long touchdowns can we expect Jonathan Taylor to hit on? And then he had an absurd role inside the 10 last year. He had 43 green zone touches. It was the most in the NFL since Arian Foster in 2012. It's not far off from the most since 2000, which was LaDainian Tomlinson's 50 in 2004. That's a whole different era when, when backs were scoring 28 TDs in a, in a season 26. People might remember the Tomlinson seasons, the Sean Alexander season, the Priest Holmes seasons. I mean, he had 43 touches. Top, the, the peak during even all of that era was 50 for a guy. So wow. I don't know that t- Taylor's going to be able to back up that even though he's going to have like a really high percentage of their touches inside the 10 yard line, I don't know that he's going to be able to back that degree of it up. If they just have maybe a few longer pass TDs, you know, that takes just, some, yeah, there's some, just some randomness. Yeah. yeah. In terms, it's not that the way they utilize him will change. It's just the, the total amount of team opportunities from that point in the field is likely to regress some. Um, and right. that's going to, that's going to hit him. I think you described it well, like he's clearly a talented, receiver his yards per reception stuff his catch rate stuff uh each of his first two seasons has all been phenomenal the concerns a little bit like you look down the stretch you know, you've got some you've got a couple of games with zero targets a couple of games with two targets you know overall on the season he's got one two three four five six seven eight eight games with two or fewer targets which you know it's a lot and they ran pretty well on game script over the course of the season but yeah, elite talent, you got to keep them in the top five. Uh, for me, just the way I draft, like, yeah, Christian McCaffrey, if he stays healthy, he's, he's going to beat Jonathan Taylor by a meaningful margin because he can beat everybody by a meaningful margin. So uh, I'm taking that type of upside. So I've seen him see ahead. And then, you know, just with that pass catching expectation for Taylor, not from a talent level, but from a volume projection standpoint, I'd rather go with the high end wide receivers of Cup and Jefferson. But it is close. And um, yeah, he is basically like a kind of a rich man's Derrick Henry, if you will. And Derrick Henry had been pretty profitable for players. And there's more pass catching upside. Like if Hines were to get hurt, for example, 
we could see more of a three down Jonathan Taylor, which is a very, you know, scary thought in terms of what that could result in. And Ryan has always thrown to his backs at a pretty high rate. So yeah, I mean, I think the big question is, can he catch, you know, instead of 40 balls, 60 balls. And it doesn't seem particularly likely with Hines there, but it's possible. Like you said, if Hines gets hurt, I mean, there, there are some outs that way. Yeah. And speaking of Hines, Hines is someone that I've been, you know, kind of high on in drafts. I just really like these guys that have this hybrid, you know, combination of some standalone value and then some contingent value. And, you know, we were talking about this with Peter Overset and Pat Crane. If JT were to go down, you know, it's not that we think Hines would come in and have a JT like workload. In fact, on our ceiling case uh, on ETR for our projections, I think we have like a 40% rush upside, but I do think if he's taking instead of, you know, half the targets, he's taking two thirds of the running back targets and then half the carries in this offense that plays pretty well from a ceiling perspective. And again, you can, he's going to be, I think, close to startable. Um, I don't know if I should say on a weekly basis, but if you are drafting a zero RB type of build, he's someone that you can slot in to just get you through some weeks uh, while you wait for, some of the upside guys to hit on your bench. Yeah. The tough thing is just, you know, sort of how much um, Taylor takes, right? Because Heinz, mm-hmm. I, like he did lose some rush attempts last year compared to like the year before. Uh, he only had 56 rush attempts for the, for the season. He only had 40 catches. That was also down a little bit. I, I where he goes, I, I think you can get his archetype a little bit later. Like there's some other pass catching options a little bit later, but I do get it. And I, I just haven't found myself taking him a lot. Cause I think he's kind of priced up for a pure pass catching back with a really talented lead back. Yeah, that's fair. I like him a little bit better in best ball. And again, like one of the big yeah. things with these running back archetypes is like just being smart with your team. Like if you've got guys that you can slot in, like you're not taking Naheem Hines over Isaiah Spiller. You know, you're probably taking Isaiah Spiller's pure upside, you know, just throwing him out there, like one of those handcuffs. But, you know, if Hines is your second back, which if you are a pretty extreme zero RB drafter, like that's something that could happen. Um, He's a little bit more valuable just to, to be able to have some level of startability. And they do have Philip Lindsay as an RB3, who I don't think is too fantasy relevant other than that is part of the reason why Heinz's upside could be capped in a, you know, Jonathan Taylor goes down type situation. Lindsay's a capable back as far as a pure rusher. Yep. Agreed. Michael, but I do think, I do think Heinz would add some rushes in that scenario for sure. Yeah. He'd add some, he, but he wouldn't be like a huge lead back. Uh, a guy that I've been low on all off season is the wide receiver one for the Colts, Michael Pittman. And, the tape people love Michael Pittman, Gretch. I get it. He's a very talented wide receiver. I have a hard time seeing him being a tier ahead of like Deontay Johnson, Terry McLaurin. I've used that kind of comp a lot as like a similar bucket to me as these guys who I think are going to command really high target shares in their offense, but might not have like insane ceilings. And Pittman goes, you know, a full round ahead of those guys pretty regularly. I've got him at 127 targets. You have him at 131 targets, which is, you know, roughly in line with what he did last season. Yeah. The tough, he's a tough one for me from a projection standpoint, because he does come out really well. 
at the same time, I'm basically projecting, I mean, you get this element where like, where are else are the targets going to go? And so I'm basically projecting him as high as I think he can handle on some other offenses, some players that I might project for similar volume. It's because there's other guys that I really need to allocate some targets to. Um, like I have him pretty close to AJ Brown in my targets. I, I definitely wanted to still allocate a lot of targets to Devonta Smith and Dallas Goddard in a way that I didn't really feel the need to in my Colts projection. Cause those guys were both really good as well last year. And even like Quez Watkins, who like, I, you know, so when I was doing Philly, there's other places for these targets to go. Pittman. What's interesting. Like he did take a big step forward in targets per run and some of those metrics, the, you know, the underlying volume earning metrics last year, but he, he took a step forward into like a very good, but not great bucket. And like, like, Last year, he didn't have any competition. I mean, even probably less than he has this year. Yeah. They've added Alec Pierce. Paris Campbell maybe stays healthy at some point. Um, you know, T.Y. Hilton was a, sort of a shell of his former self last year. They had Zach Pascal running around. They didn't have a lot else in the entire offense. And Pittman was good, but, I mean, he was good, especially even after the target, very good, you know, winning contested catches and had a good yards per target and, and did a lot of things that were encouraging, but, I was describing him last year as feeling like he was sort of a long-term wide receiver too. And I thought the Colts might bring in someone that would have been more competition for him this off season. They didn't. He still has room to be the clear number one. And yet like where he comes out of my projection, I feel like it's sort of his ceiling. Like we already saw him in an offense that was devoid of other options. It wouldn't be that surprising if somebody like a Campbell has like a, a breakout season or Alec Pierce is really good as a rookie. If Pittman's like actually, you know, backpedaling a little bit because there's a little more competition than there was even last year. Yeah, and it's a team that will spread out the ball a ton. Pittman ended up with around a 25% target share last season. Zach Pascal was second at 14%, you know, so there was a huge gap. So to your point about if someone were to emerge here, like there was, there would really was absolutely no one last year. So it's probable that he doesn't have much competition, but again, that was a 25% target share. I think to pay off his tag in this offense, you, you want more of like a 28 to 30% target share. Right, right. He's guy. so he's so expensive. Like fifth round would be fine, but he's going in a range where it's really hard. If I'm taking a receiver in the third round, especially a lot of times the early third round with Pittman, he's got to be able to return first round wide receiver value. He's got to be able to contend with Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson. Don't see it with Pittman. Yeah, right now on the FFPC season-long rankings that established run, we have Pittman as wide receiver 16, 36 overall. His ADP is 28th overall, wide receiver 11. And we're baking in some of the ADP, so we're like moving, even inching that a little bit, you know, closer. Our, our un, kind of unadjusted rank would be even lower. Whereas, again, like Deontay Johnson is going 44th overall. That's, that's 16 picks. Terry McLaurin, same thing, 44th overall. And I just... Like, I just don't see a big enough separation between him and, and players like that. Yep. Uh, Paris Campbell, Alec Pierce, uh, you've been drafting any of these guys or interested in any of them. Uh, right now, for me, they're kind of like best ball only targets. And yeah, or talking- early waiver wire watch because there's room for a second per- a player to step up in this offense, but I'm not really targeting them at all it's a low volume offense and we don't really know yet i don't i mean the issue with campbell like he's not stayed healthy we've got really small samples on him for three straight years now don't really even know if he's good or like what he is he's shown little flashes but i don't think he's run more than it's like a hundred and something routes this is his career high which is a very small amount 
we're talking, you know, 600 is, is like a full-time receiver for the course of a season. Uh, his career high is 120. So, like, I mean, we don't even know if he's good, <laughs> you know? And in your typical redraft leagues, I mean, the same thing kind of applies to the tight ends where Mo Cox, Jelani Woods, Kylan Granson, it's you know unclear exactly what the pecking order is going to be. These guys are going to be so spread out almost regardless of what the pecking order is going to be. That it's, it's really tough to justify in any sort of generic managed league there. You know, I have grabbed some Mo Cox very late in FFPC best ball leagues where you're talking 20 rounds, tight end premium. You might want that third tight end. Um, we've got a big discrepancy in projected targets between Jelani Woods and Kylan Granson. That might be a case of me just like overjuicing the rookie with a little bit more, more upside. But I know we did kind of like Kylan Granson going into last year. He did have a couple weeks where he got to a double digit target share last season. I don't know if he has spent a ton of time on it because I don't know how relevant it is, but any takes on the Colts tight end situation? Well, I think probably the biggest thing is both Granson and Woods have enough upside and appeal that. I'm not really in on Mo Alley Cox. Like I think all three of them, he's just got a lot of depth behind them. They rotate their tight ends as much as they rotate their receivers, like we said. So um, it's a tough spot to, to think that one tight end is going to wind up being the guy. We'll go to Tennessee and we've got them around league average in terms of plays per game, right around 64, maybe it maybe a touch, touch above. I've got them with a 56% called pass rate, but you have a 54% called pass rate. That nets out in the end to me being about one pass attempt per game higher than you and one rush attempt per game lower than you. And there's a lot of guesswork there. They obviously ship out A.J. Brown. They draft Traylon Burks. Uh, Part of me is just skeptical about the workload that Derrick Henry is going to continue to take on, which leads me to think they just might have to pass a little bit more. But last season, their pass rate was 53%. You know, two seasons ago, it was 51.5%. And both of those seasons, very negative in terms of pass rate over expectation. Just one final thing I'll add there. They did somehow end up with the one seed last season. Um, so I do think the game script could could certainly dip for them this year compared to last year. But it was really interesting. There were eight percentage points to the negative in pass rate over expected um, even with Henry missing a, a chunk of time last year. And they go mm-hmm. out to get Hassan Haskins, who's a bigger rookie. They lose Deontay Foreman, who's a guy that they kind of had play the Henry role, along with Dontrell Hilliard a little bit. And they had Jeremy, Jeremy McNichols working in. He's gone as well. But they still have Hilliard, and they bring in Haskins. And they look to me like a team that, you know, it even based on last year, even if Henry does – need to be scaled back or goes down or anything like they, they just want to continue to have this identity. Yeah. And that leads to Ryan Tannehill really not having too much juice uh, as a, a fantasy quarterback once in a while in DFS, see someone off fire up depending on the game script. And he does have a little bit of goal line rushing touchdown upside, but ultimately like the volumes really not there and you have to be concerned uh, with the efficiency when you're losing wide receivers, like he's lost Corey Davis and uh, AJ Brown, the last two seasons, guys that, you know, in their final seasons with Tennessee had very high yards per out run. And they, not to mention Johnny Smith and, and Anthony Ferks are the last two years too. So he's got new tight ends as well. It's, it's rough. Yeah. At running back, Derek Henry is someone that like I'm, I'm fading a decent bit. I wasn't like, as 
anti-Henry in the past as, as some drafters, but this year with him going RB6, he's going in the first round. I, like I just don't think he's still a first-round pick at this point. As he continues to age, now we've had an injury to him. Now we've got more team concerns. Again, those concerns with Ryan Tannehill, you know, they flow through to the rest of the offense in terms of how efficient this offense might be. So I'm I'm pretty concerned with Derrick Henry. The workload is going to be there. We each have him for, you know, 320 rush attempts, which is massive. Was utilized a little bit more in the passing game last year, which was you know, somewhat important. But uh, yeah, I mean, last year was really volume dependent, even more so than past seasons. Uh, he was, I mean, he had like 30 carry games and. Yeah, he was. Uh, so his two big years, 2019, 2020, he was at 20.2 carries a game, 23.6. Last year, he was up at 27.4, and his receiving, he was up to 2.3 catches a game. He had never been more than 1.2, so he's adding at least one reception per game over every other season of his career. It's like they were trying to get him hurt. I mean, I really like didn't understand. They were just really seeing how much they could get out of him. You'd think they have to scale back a little bit, but with the added receiving, like while he was healthy last year, he was incredible. His, his points per game even in PPR were better than any other back in the NFL last year. And obviously only plays eight games. I, yeah, I'm not really super on him uh, again this year, but you can see it if he stays healthy. I mean, obviously if they're going to use him that much and he continues to be, you know, Derrick Henry esque, like. Yeah. The workload is nuts. He led the NFL in carries in 2019 with 303. Then he goes up from 303 to 378 in 2020, which leads the NFL in carries again. And last year, his 16-game pace was 438 carries. So uh, basically... Why were they doing doing that? (laughs) Right. his, His carry pace was 135 more carries. So like a 30, more than a 33% increase than his league leading carries in 2019. Like, it's just like, it's absurd. Things we haven't seen before. But um, if they go back to that and you're not drafting Henry, you're basically just betting on him not being able to hold up again because he's going to be good if, if they if they ride him that heavy. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I think there's a little bit more systemic risk than in the past. I do think one thing that's like worth pointing out, um, this isn't even a Henry specific thing. But when you see people referencing receiving efficiency, which I kind of did with Jonathan Taylor with backs, but like it's pretty highly, highly volatile, some of the receiving yeah. metrics for backs, especially the lower target ones. So Ben, 2020, he was at 3.7 yards per target, caught 61% of his targets and his yards per catch wasn't that good. It was at 6.0. Like both those metrics were really bad. Last season, he caught 90% of his targets and was at 8.6 yards per catch. So there's just like a lot of variance, especially for the lower volume running backs in the past game, something to be aware of to not like one way or the other, not cling to that stuff. I think Miles Sanders was a good example too. Like his rookie season, he had awesome yards per out run. And then his second year was dreadful. And you, you know, you just got to kind of neutralize that a little bit as far as behind Henry. Like if we're worried about the workload, we're worried about him holding up. Is there a handcuff that you like between Hassan Haskins and Dontrell Hilliard? Yeah, I think it's Haskins just because he's a bigger back. It seems like they probably brought him in to play the Deontay Foreman role. And if Henry did go down, he's the guy that they would treat as sort of the direct 
replacement for the between the tackle stuff. But Hilliard was really efficient last year. Probably plays more on pass downs. I have him catching a decent number of balls this year and maybe taking some of the McNichol snaps. I don't think they'll stick with the extra receiving for Henry last year. That was new last year. He gets hurt. If they're going to scale him back at all, I think it probably starts on passing downs. Just let him be, you know, who he was in the prior seasons. Um, even though his receiving wasn't like through the roof or anything last year, but it was up. Uh, and, and so I think Hilliard might actually have a little bit of a role. Like I was just talking about Hines or some cheaper pass catchers. Hilliard to me is like one that nobody's drafting that, or, or yeah. he goes really, really late that could wind up, you know, if you go look at Jeremy McNichols, he had some playable weeks last year, maybe not as great in best ball, but if you're talking about, you know, ZURB builds and trying to find somebody to pick up off waivers and that kind of stuff, Hilliard might be a guy to, to keep an eye on early in the season or to draft late if you have a really thin running back room and you just need to plug and play. Because I think it's possible he's catching three, four balls in, you know, a game and, and in negative scripts having six catch games. Let's go to wide receiver. Traylon Burks has been one of my favorite draft targets as his, you know, his ADP continues to plummet. I hate to throw out, like, I don't want to throw out the Jamar Chase comparison because he's not a Jamar Chase level prospect by any means. And it's also not a Jamar Chase level landing spot but as far as off-season noise i think trumping the upside a bit more than it should i see some comparisons to chase last off-season where people are just worried about you know he can't catch the ball with burks it's been like is he in shape the asthma stuff and like early on in camp it already seems like that's you know but almost evaporated those I concerns forgot, i forgot did you uh highlight that as uh pretty important last year and and tell people <laughs> that they shouldn't be afraid of that and to to draft jamar alpha play chase last year i i'm tempted to make burks my flag plant my one season long flag plant last year was jamar chase who i i got wrong though gratch i said he would be going in round two this season and he's going to round one so it did, did have some error yeah. uh Looking at the comments on that tweet is uh, is always funny, um, but yeah, do rookies uncertainty like this is, you know, so, sometimes rookies are the best bets in fantasy. I particularly love the rookies who are going to be stepping into roles and people are still a little bit scared because, you know, sometimes you bet on the rookies like you know Terrace Marshall, Rondell Moore last year, and like the role uncertainties and it's just like it might not happen even if the player is talented. Um, you get someone like Burks though. Who they trade AJ Brown. They draft him immediately. They did bring in Robert Woods, but there's just not much target competition. Burks, for some people, was the number one wide receiver prospect. He ends up going, I think, wide receiver five or six in the actual NFL draft. And still, as far as dynasty goes, I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen him as the wide receiver one in some places. We had him as the wide receiver two with Anthony Amico's dynasty rankings that established a run only behind Drake London. So for me, when you're getting outside of the top six rounds of your fantasy draft, maybe top seven at that point, like I'm really zoning in on upside. And I think Burks has pretty significant upside. Yeah. Two years in a row of um, 40% dominator rating seasons in the sec in 2020 and 2021, 30% is typically that breakout age uh, or, or that breakout level. he He's a three-year early declare. He was my wide receiver one pre-draft. I think after London went a little higher, uh, I would have adjusted and had London higher. But I, I mean, I'm, I think they're right there with each other. The other thing that I noticed in his profile was he didn't feast on non-conference teams. Like he, all of almost all of his big games were against SEC opponents. I think he only had one hundred-yard game in his entire career that was against a, a non-SEC opponent. 
He had the second best game of his career against Alabama this past year, 179 and from a yardage perspective, 179 yards, two TDs. I mean, he was beating SEC cornerbacks, played in a tough conference, dominated. That type of production tends to translate. And people are like, they're worried that he's out of shape. Like he's really good at football. That's what that says. <laughs> like hopefully he gets back in shape, but he's really good at football. And we've got him leading the Titans in targets, both of us. You have him with 112. I'm at 104. We both have Robert Woods at a, at 102. But, like, that's his almost only competition. I mean, there's just nobody anywhere on this depth chart. And Robert Woods, I love Robert Woods. Really fine player. But he's now, what, He's this is his age 30 season coming off a pretty meaningful injury. And he's, you know, switching teams. like. If you're not drafting Traylon Burks because you're afraid of Robert Woods, that's that's like the ultimate five condom drafting is what Levitan would say. Yep. They had nine non-running backs with 10-plus targets last year. Uh, Nick Westbrook-Akina is the only receiver returning from that group, and Jeff Swaim is the only other non-running back, the only tight end returning from that group. They had 57 and 40 targets. Um, Jeff Swaim's now like their third tight end because they brought an Austin Hooper in. The rookie uh that we'll talk about in a minute so the, you just said it there's no one here it's all turnover why i mean there's not really anything standing in the way of burks just stepping right in and being the number one woods would be obviously like you said the other potential big competition but it's not like there's a lot of guys here that Tannehill has a rapport with They're, like they had some ancillary pieces chester rogers and stuff and all those guys are gone and you're hoping too that even let's say Burks and Woods are close, you're on total targets. That end of the season, Burks is starting to take you know more of command of the situation, which leads to like higher per game upside at the most critical time of your fantasy year. Uh, absolutely no one I'm drafting beyond Burks and Woods. I've you know Woods I've taken some at ADP just because you know it's pretty low. I do want to like at least be open minded to like. Like I want to bet on Burks because of the uncertainty, but also that uncertainty does mean that if, if he isn't good, that Robert Woods could have a decent season. Um, not typically the profile I'm looking in redraft manage, so I want a little bit more upside than Woods typically. Yeah, he's not really tight end either. Yeah, tight end Austin Hooper Ben. I mean, there's no. I mean, the Jeff Swaim, as you mentioned, is back. Um, I just have this so spread that even though there's not a lot of target competition for anyone here, I don't really have Hooper as much of a value. Hooper was pretty poor last year from like a per target standpoint too. If I um, recall correctly, he was pretty boring. Let me, let me just confirm that. Yeah. So the big thing with Hooper is since when he was in Atlanta playing in a dome, he was churning out, you know, 75% catch rates year after year. He goes to Cleveland, his catch rate immediately drops from 77% the year prior to 66%, drops again to 62%. So in terms of yards per target, he's gone from 8.1 to 6.2 to 5.7. So uh, that's not great, (laughs) especially if you're worried about, you know, this offense providing volume in terms of, you know, their play calling. Yeah, not super athletic, needs to catch a lot of targets. Um, he's, you know, maybe a very late option. Again, another guy that I'm going to, if I add him, probably going to be trying to add him on waivers. I don't really mind missing on him. There's not probably a ton of upside here. Uh, anything else at tight end? I don't know if you want to talk about the rookie here or. 
Um, yeah. I don't know how to say his name. Chicka, that's, that's, why, that's why I referred to him as <laughs> the, playing, rookie, the rookie playing, here. Playing a game of chicken here. Um, I Yeah, I mean, it's going to be probably pretty split. I didn't – Swaim had a pretty solid role as the number two tight end last year, so we both haven't projected for more targets than Okonkwo. So if Okonkwo breaks out, it's probably like a Hooper injury. I mean, again, another kind of committee tight end situation it looks like to a degree. Yeah, Okonkwo is someone, you know, he has like a really high speed score. So there's definitely some athleticism there that you'd keep an eye on. But really in managed leagues, you're you're not you're not touching the tight end situation. Um, let's go to Houston. We have them with somewhat boring play calling overall. You have them at 60 plays per game. I have them at 61 plays per game. I have 61% pass rate, you have a 62% pass rate. So we're talking like pretty low volume offense. We're both, you know, netting out like around 34 pass attempts per game and 24 rush attempts per game. Uh, Davis Mills, I know Levitan and Anthony Amico at ETR are big Davis Mills stands. I'm still pretty skeptical over the talent here with Davis Mills. Like I think he ex- he definitely exceeded expectations, but I-, I don't know. I've got him at 237 points in standard leagues. You've got him at 256. I think you know he's only someone you're looking at in two QB leagues or like very late in best ball. And I'm st- I'm I'm worried this offense could be a train wreck. There might be some bias from me, Ben, where last year I thought it was going to be so 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 bad, and it was not as bad as I thought. But I still think there's that outcome where this offense is just really quite dreadful. Yeah, Mills was all right. Uh, pretty good completion percentage. Moved the the offense better than I thought he would last year, but. I'm with you in terms of the skepticism. I know like one, one individual play doesn't matter, but I, I'm pretty sure his biggest play of the year, longest longest pass of the year, um, if not it was one of his longest, was the TD to Chris Moore against the Patriots where he basically just like chucked it up into triple coverage and Chris Moore like came down with this jump ball and broke free somehow um, and, and, you know, winds up with this super long touchdown. That's the kind of, you know, he had a couple moments like that, I think, last year. I mean, Brandon Cooks is good. I just I, – I don't know where else he's going to get plays like that again this year, basically. That kind of stuff's not very sustainable. Yeah, and, you know, I'm taking a look at, like, Q, like pro football references QBR had, like, Mills, like, 27th overall. So, again, exceeding expectations, it was pretty low bar. It was still pretty bad season overall for Mills. Um, definitely concerned for the overall offense. Uh, and at running back, you know, it's tough to have these guys be too appealing as a result because – the context isn't great in terms of the strength of the offense. And there's also a shitload of running backs here. And, you know, hopefully this gets whittled down over the off season. Uh, the main guys I've got projected, the rookie Damian Pierce, they brought in Marlon Mack. They still have Rex Burkhead and they brought in Dare Agumawale. I believe they still have possibly Royce Freeman here. Um, I think so. But, but, you know, I mean, one of these guys has to get cut just like the pure numbers game. Of it, if you were to draft someone, I think like Pierce has the earliest ADP, and you can see why because it's kind of just a bet on like, hey, let's bet on the rookie in a in a crowded backfield. Is that like, I mean, that's like almost. It. I know some people are fans of Pierce. Amico likes him a little bit, uh, and we should talk about one of the bigger discrepancies we have in the projection, which we're very similar in carries. But I have forty five targets, you have twenty six. Pierce did not catch a whole ton in college 
uh, Amico, I'm just, I'm just parodying Amico at this point because uh, I don't do the prospect analysis, my stuff. I just reach out to people I trust. And he said like just the nature of the offense kind of dictated that not necessarily Pierce's skill set and that, you know, there were some scouting reports that he was pretty good in pass protection. So I'm a little more optimistic that there's at least a chance he could catch passes and it is somewhat meaningful because if you're going to take a shitty back on a shitty offense, like he's got to be able to be on the field for three downs. Yeah, I like that. That's a good take. I uh, wasn't aware of that. Shout out Amico for that. I have Burkhead leading the team in targets and, and receptions and just being that boring veteran that kind of seals that work. I think if there's one back I was going to take, it would be Burkhead at the very end because I do think He's going to play enough early. He's, he's like completely free. And like, again, we're talking about zero RB teams. If you do a zero RB team, I think Rex Burkhead in the final round is probably one of the best picks you can make as a guy who's, you know, going to probably play quite a bit early as the veteran on pass downs who, you know, they obviously played a lot late last year. Um, I think we talked about it on our last show, but Levitan remembers that obviously uh, banking with, with Burkhead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I think it's going to probably be mostly Mac and Burkhead early and Mac wasn't very good for the Colts last year, but he was coming off and Achilles that can be more of like an 18 month injury. Wasn't, didn't really look explosive. Apparently. I mean, a lot of the reports on Mac this year that he looks good there. They were positive on him last year as well, but if you know, another year removed from the Achilles, he's all right. I kind of, I do think Pierce does steal work throughout the season and, and probably end the season as their main guy in a lost year. But, I mean, you're probably taking Pierce and hoping that, you know, Mack and Burkhead aren't playing 80% of the snaps week one and Pierce is in this 20% number three role and that it doesn't kind of stay as a committee for the early part of the year or you might have to cut it. Yeah, I think Pierce, where he's going, which on FFPC is RB40, you need a lot to go right. Like, you kind of need that role out of the gate to justify that ADP. We're behind ADP. Um so even with like some of my Pierce optimism, like it's still, again, like it's just an uphill battle when you're in this type of offense. The one of the backs we're most behind ADP on is Marlon Mack. And you kind of stole my, like, I mean, I hate to even call it a hot take because it's like Rex Burkhead versus Marlon Mack. Like how important is this? But I've seen a lot of people drafting Marlon Mack late as like a go-to back. And like, I don't get it. I think Burkhead is the better option as well, where, we've seen Burke had hit a weekly ceiling in this offense before. And it's just as far as what these guys can do, Marlon Mack, you know, never caught passes at any point. And Rex Burkhead can catch passes. So like all else aside, just the fact that Rex Burkhead could catch passes plus get some goal line work makes him more valuable to me than to Marlon Mack. So I don't really get any of the Marlon Mack hype. Um, I don't know. I just really hate betting on, on two down back, like like a two down back in a bad offense competing against a rookie. Like I don't get it. It's maybe that he would have a more defined, like definable role than Burke had, you know, like mm-hmm. a guaranteed number of low value touches, 10 to 12 carries or whatever. If he's the starter early in the year, I can see again in, in zero RB settings, but he, I I've thought about him in some drafts, but he, he still goes in kind of a, not like a pricey range, but in a range where I still have other like, dude, he's RB fifty three. That's not like, like yeah. there's definitely there's guys um, that you want to like, take there that are like ex, like exciting upside bets. Yeah, like Tyrion Davis Price is close to him. 
Um, there's even some guys. Algier that, is going in that range, right? Like, dude, like I take Jarek McKinnon all day over, yeah. <laughs> you know, over Marlon Mack. Like Brian Robinson, I'd probably take. Mack um, is maybe like a bridge back for a zero RB build and manage that you can drop, you know, after a month if you hit, have a hit somewhere else. But like to your point, mm-hmm. Burkhead might also be that guy in the twentieth round. <laughs> Yeah, with with a touch with the dash more upside, but we'll follow the camp news. Like maybe if it, like if it becomes clear that Max, like here's what like if Mac was going into the season as the guaranteed like starting two down back, like how early would you even take him then? Like probably where he goes now. <laughs> yeah, not a lot higher. <laughs> like so, in a way, he's like almost being drafted at his best case outcome. Maybe we're being too hard on him. I don't know. Maybe don't he can know. catch some passes. That's the only really counter to that. Maybe you're being too hard on the pass catching. That's yeah. All I can all I can muster. Brandon Cooks, uh, interesting guy to look at. Definitely struggled with him this off season. And the dilemma with Brandon Cooks is he came out of last season out of the gate with just some of these insane target shares and there's really not much competition for him this year as well i'm still a little bit worried where i kind of think like last year's targets might be more representative of his ceiling than his base outcome there was some data when nico collins was on the field the target share was a lot lower for um for brandon cooks jacob gibbs tweeted this and one of the things you noted, Brandon Cooks was targeted on 29% of his routes with Nico Collins off the field. That fell to 22.8% with Collins on the field. And if you look at it broken down by segments of the season, the first half of the season, Cooks was like a 30% target share guy. Post bye week, he was more like a 22, 23% target share guy. And that's what I've got essentially as his, you know, base target share projection is a, is a 23% target share guy, which like makes him fine in round f- like five, maybe six, but it's generally guys with more upside that I like. And he's also started to get even pricier than that. Yep. It's, it's, you know, very similar to Michael Pittman on a little bit of a different scale. This episode sort of the philosophical one at the wide receiver position. I mean, same same as Pittman, and you just said it, like this might be closer to a ceiling. It feels more like a small hit type player. We talk about the small miss, big hit players. Um, there's a lot of projectable volume. Brandon Cooks is very good. He has a long track record of earning volume at a good rate and being pretty good on that volume. But this offense isn't going to be great. Probably part of the reason his target share fell off last year is because defenses started to be like, yeah, okay, we're, we're – Here's a scouting report halfway through the year. Shut down Brandon Cooks and this offense sucks. Like they, they didn't have anything else. Um, you can't really expect a huge touchdown rate unless you're really in on Davis Mills, maybe throwing 25, 30 touchdowns this year. It's a lot of targets, but it does feel like this baseline projection because you don't really feel like you have to jam in targets for anyone else on this roster is basically close to what his ceiling is. I don't really see a lot of past him having way more targets. I don't see a lot of past him being, you know, otherworldly efficient or having a super high TD rate in this offense. So uh, I'm with you. He'll have his big games for sure because he's good. He's a good player. He's just on a bad team. Yeah. 7.7 yards per target. Uh, Definitely not the end of the world, but the lowest of his career he had last season. Um, enters his age 29 season. He missed only one game last year, which led to 134 targets, which was a career high for him. But you have him 
basically the same 135 targets. I haven't met 128. Uh, but I'll also again, note, I'm still concerned about the concussion history. That was a talk going into last year. He gets through a year, no concussions. Glad for that. He has a long history with concussions on a team. Yeah, that's he's not got going a, anywhere. We, it's a weird injury profile. Cause he has not missed many games at all, but he's like left a lot of games and, it's one of the, you're just always concerned that like one big concussion could be, could be it. Yeah. Or at least a multi-week absence for a team that's going nowhere, you know? Uh, the good news for Brandon Cooks is there's not a ton of competition for targets. I brought up Nico Collins, who's an interesting year two player. We have him for the low nineties in targets. Unfortunately, like sad situation with the rookie John Metzi uh, being out for the year, um, given his health diagnosis. Uh, that leaves Nico Collins as the clear number two behind him. There's just, you know, there's, there's guys that stick around. Chris Conley, Philip Dorsett, um, neither of these guys are going to compete. It's a pretty, pretty clear one, two pecking order as far as cooks and Collins goes in the target tree. Yeah, that's how I have it. Um, feels like, uh, I, yeah, my notes are cooks and Collins headline and wide, wide receiver group that doesn't have much else. I have, you know, Dorsett, Conley, Chris Moore projected for some stuff. Brev, I mean, we can jump over to tight end probably. Brevin, Brevin Jordan does have room. He was a 21-year-old rookie last year. We like to see the three-year early declares. Uh, he had a 22% targets per out run on 129 routes last year. That's a good number for a tight end already, but especially for a 21-year-old rookie. Caught three touchdowns on his small sample. Uh, was very productive in college. Fell a little bit in the draft, but the fact that he worked into a pretty decent role and now Jordan Akins leaves, I think the runway is sort of there. I, I think you were telling me you're not really getting it with Brevin Jordan, so I'm kind of curious. Well, I'm I'm more like I'm glad to hear you talk about him a little bit more just because I'm like uncertain here. Okay. My you know, my issue with Brevin Jordan is you know, like at the end of the day, like his target share last year was like, you know, 10% or so. Um but didn't I, run a ton of routes. That was part of yeah. it. It's kind of rotational. Yeah, I guess that's the big question. Like, does this lead to more routes? I have them with a 12% target share this year. Uh, I'm probably going to bump that. Listen to you talk about him some more. You have him with 80 total targets. I have him with 67. 14%, 14% um, for me. Yeah. And this, again, just goes to show you like how finicky like some of this projection stuff is and why we try to think big picture. But you know, the difference between 12% and 14% is kind of big in like a best ball draft where you're taking multiple tight ends. Like that's like right now I've sort of been siding with taking gambles on Trey McBride or Greg Dulcich in the 18th round as my third tight end in three tight end builds. But if you're more to like 14% and also kind of depending which, you know, what type of tight ends you have in front of them, like Brevin Jordan becomes a bit more usable. And at that point, you know, I might skew the pure upside cases for the rookies to take Jordan, who might have less pure upside, but okay upside and more of a stable role out of the gate. I like both those rookies a lot too, though. So when you put it that way, like, I'm like, yeah, I'd probably just take McBride and Dulcich. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm splitting the difference. I'm going to bump him to 13% for my 12% and go in the middle. Um, I think you make a good case for him being a little bit higher. It is someone though that like in your typical one tight end leagues, you know, he's, I don't know, he's probably not getting drafted. Um, yeah. Yeah. But like, if you want to play Houston's lack of 
strong receivers. You can pay a really high premium for Brandon Cooks, and he probably can't do much more than the maxed out targets he had last year, like we talked about. Or you can try to find an intriguing player like Nico Collins or Brevin Jordan cheaply that you know some of the upside scenarios for Brandon Cooks are similar for those guys, which is like, oh, maybe Davis Mills is a little better than we thought. Maybe they throw a little bit more. They just get into a couple mm-hmm. of shootouts and, and the pass volume comes up. Somebody else is going to have to be involved here too. It can't just be Cooks. I, I like If I'm going to play into a bad offense like this, it's going to be really cheaply with a guy, and especially like a guy like Jordan. Like If he ends up being a solid tight end, that can be a pretty usable piece, obviously. Because tight end is not a it's, very deep position. Yeah, it's also you know a good DFS now out of the gate. Like if he's yeah. going to be a min price tight end, and there's a little bit of juice there, you know he might be more usable there. Whereas as we hit on you know in best ball season long, perhaps you're just taking like the huge swing on McBride or Dulcich. Uh, just one final Texans thing before I move on. I do want to note, like I'm not super into Brandon Cooks, but Silva's got him 38th overall in his top 150, which leaves him. Um, you know, combined with our projection stuff, we have them and full PPR sites, like a touch ahead of ADP. Um, I'm personally like drafting him a little bit later than that. And the half PPR stuff, we definitely have them behind ADP because his game is pretty volume dependent. Uh, Jacksonville, what a train wreck they were last year under Urban Meyer. Really difficult to know what to do. Of course, ATN gets hurt in the preseason. Lawrence, I mean, you, all, you have to give him a pass to an extent, just given the situation he was thrown into. So they're tough to project. And I'm guessing that's why you ended up with having them right around the league average amount of plays at 63.8. That's maybe something I should look into. We're lower at 62.3. Uh, we're both at a pass rate of just shy of 63%. So I went and looked at Peterson's you know final years with the Eagles. They average, uh, I had it at 66.8 plays, pass rate of 63.9. I don't have the Jaguars at either of those numbers because they're not going to be as good as those Eagles teams. But yeah, I mean, you, you said it well when you introduced the team. Like I'm, I, I wrote in my notes, like I, I kind of feel like we have to throw out the urban year entirely. Like it was such a shit show, frankly, that, I mean, the whole system that the, the players were asked to execute was probably just, you know, wrong, <laughs> like just bad. Right. And uh, we didn't get really any indication at any point that, like the adjustments or anything that were being made, we're putting these players in a position to succeed. Um, statistically, that shows up, you know, across the board. Nothing really looked good. I'm not saying you give somebody like a Trevor Lawrence a complete pass because he also had a bad first year. It's just like you said, it's really hard to know if we are going to look back and be like, yeah, that was just a because they were by far the most dysfunctional team in the league last year. By far, one of the most dysfunctional seasons of any team in the last decade, probably. I would say. I mean, that, it was atrocious. Yeah, and Lawrence himself, I actually think he's like kind of intriguing if you are looking for a little bit of quarterback upside late. Basically, after the top 12 or so quarterbacks, I mean, it, it's really difficult to find some upside, but the guys that I'm looking at are guys that could rush a little bit or guys that are young and could actually be really good and maybe their year one wasn't indicative of who they are. So Lawrence is one of those guys, basically the rookies who stunk last year that we liked are the guys I'm looking at again, Fields, Lawrence, Zach Wilson, uh, looking at those types. So he's kind of interesting to me. Um, Again, more in like two quarterback stuff or best ball where the quarterback scarcity is different. Still, you know, I'm not into, you know, the real late round quarterback in one quarterback leagues, but um, 
if, if they do end up though with Peterson with that play call, if he does end up being good and he runs a little bit and they are against what I'm projecting in terms of play calling, and they're a little bit more up tempo, a little bit more pass happy, you do start to see ways he could crack, you know, the top 10 overall quarterbacks. Yep. E- yeah. Travis Etienne, Ben, uh, another difficult projection. And, you know, he's coming off uh, the injury last season, so we didn't get a really good look at him. The good news for him is the coaching staff switch. James Robinson gets hurt last year. It sounds like Robinson, another one of these guys who's coming back earlier from an Achilles injury than expected, but that's still pretty good news for ETM that Robinson's you're likely not going to be 100%, even if he's quote-unquote ready. Did you see that video of him running on the side practice field the other day? I did not. Oh, I mean, it looked like he's... It it didn't look like he's all the way back, explosiveness-wise. Yeah. I I I mean, I have a kind of a pretty firm take on that, which is that I think people in the offseason with news like that are way too focused on, oh, James Robinson might be ready by week one. And I mean, you've you've noted to me before, I think maybe not so much on the show, but just in some of our conversations about sometimes, you know, we, we love the beat reporters. They do a great job of reporting, but sometimes they don't have, you know, a great grasp of like the probabilities of various things. The big thing with a guy like James Robinson that I would emphasize is it doesn't really matter if he's there in week one. The question is, can he play 17 weeks within 12 months of his Achilles tear, right? Like Akers made it back really quick, didn't look great for the few weeks that he played. He's now got a whole nother offseason. For Akers, he's going to be beyond the 12-month span. A lot of people say the Achilles is an 18-month injury. Marlon Mack was another guy we just talked about earlier on the show. He tore his Achilles in week one of 2020, didn't look great early in 2021. The Colts tried to use him some. There was some talk around the deadline. They were trying to move him when they didn't get a chance to, to get him traded. They basically just deactivated him the rest of the year. And we're like, we're just going to let you walk in free agency. There's all this positive buzz about Robinson being ahead of schedule and potentially being ready for week one. Like, I kind of don't care about that. And if that makes Travis Etienne's price cheaper, I think that's fantastic for anyone who wants to draft Travis Etienne. Because the scenario I can't really imagine is not that he won't play week one. I think there's plenty of possibility that he makes it back and they, they try to let him go out there and play. But it's that he's not explosive enough to be an impact player for 12 uh, 17 weeks. I was going to, I don't know why I said 12, but through, through December, I was, I was thinking about, he tore his uh, Achilles in December through month 12 for, for three or four months until the end of the year. Um, while he's still within a calendar year of the initial injury, like that's a lot, like how much work do we think he can take on this year? I really, uh, you know, I think he's an awesome player, works his butt off. I think there's a, a big reason from that perspective, uh, that the team would want to be saying all this positive stuff and and really, you know, complimenting him for how hard he's rehabbing and all that stuff. But as far as fantasy is concerned, man, like I would, I'm not touching him at all. And I'm also seeing all this like positivity about him potentially being ready early in the year as like a smoke screen for us to get a better price on ETN because I just will have a really hard time imagining him going a full season this far removed, you know, this closely removed from an Achilles. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, the price tag in ETN. I think, you know, talking to Levitan, this is one of the guys that's going to have likely a really big disparity between, you know, sharp league ADP and home league ADP. Right now, his fantasy pros ADP is 44. At that price, we're buying. That's RB22 
we have a more like RB 16 ish FFPC though. He's going 29th overall. I don't know if as, as much as I like the talent here and whatnot, that that's a richer price tag than last year. And he's coming off injury and we still haven't seen what he can do. I'm a little concerned at that price tag. Would you still be buying him in early mid round three? He's still a guy I definitely want some exposure to. The price tag does get tough because you're talking about a pretty big wide receiver tier drop in that range. Like for me, it's after AJ Brown goes off the board and ETN sometimes goes before that point. And I'm I'm still looking at Higgins and AJ Brown and you know, right before that, if Debo or Tyree Kill is still there or whoever. Um, I'm probably targeting a receiver or I'm targeting a tight end. You know, Kyle Pitts is still sitting there sometimes. So I haven't taken a lot of ETN at that price. It was nice when he was really cheap in, in early best ball drafts. He was in the fifth round early on. Um, kind of hoping the Robinson news continues to to get better and we start to get ETN closer to the four five turn, or excuse me, the three four turn uh after that wide receiver drop. I do think he's a guy that's worth taking some shots on. Was really talented. I had him higher than Najee Harris as a prospect last year. Uh, really talented at Clemson. I, there's been a lot of talk about how good of a pass blocker Robinson is, and that's part of what you know he might get back on the field for. Not really concerned about ETN's pass catching. That's something they've talked a lot about since they drafted him, obviously new coaching staff and everything. But he's good at that, and he's playing with his college quarterback, which probably doesn't seem like a major thing, but I do think is probably something that will make – Lawrence a little more comfortable having his college running back in the backfield, knowing where he's going to be out on the field, knowing, you know, getting the ball down to his check down, probably something that uh, plays well just from a, from an offensive scheme perspective and everything. And that I think will help ETN's receiving. And like I said, I think he gets a lot more rushing work because Robinson's probably not right. I mean, there's not a lot else there. Snoop Connor, the rookie probably, you know, gets some work as well, but I think there's paths to ETN having a pretty big workload and being better than, you know, like we, we don't know what he is really yet, but being better than expected as a talent. And so I don't want to be completely out. He's, he was a good prospect. Yeah. I think, yeah, for me, I mean, it's really just come down to price. I, I think I'm out completely at 29th overall. I'm definitely in at 44th overall. And then somewhere in between is more of like a mix and match gray area for me. James Robinson, if he keeps getting pricier, it's going to be an easy fade for me where he's, currently going like rb 50 ish like i could kind of stomach it just because i do think like there's some contingent value if but again it just a lot of it comes back to whether or not he's able to perform within that time frame from the achilles injury which historically you know the answer there would lead you to believe no he is not ready to do that uh any snoop connor as a light late round running back i don't really have any strong takes on him there's there's opportunity here for sure yeah I've dabbled here and there. Uh, Silva and I took him real late in our NFFC draft. That was more of a zero RB build. You know, just, you do have two guys coming back from injury. And um, if you think James Robinson's dust too, like even if Travis ATN's fine, like Snoop Connor's worth holding on to. Yep. That's what I meant. Exactly what you said. Two injured backs ahead of him are coming off injury. Pretty serious ones. He's probably a, a reasonable upside shot really late. Let's look at wide receiver Christian Kirk. We each have right around 110 targets. Part of me thinks this might even be a little bit of a conservative projection in terms of the target share. You know, he gets the mega deal. Uh, and at that target projection, I mean, he, he he's a value right now. 
He is going really late. Right now, FFPC, Football Guys Championship Leagues, he's going wide receiver 42, 85th overall. Uh, I think he's a top 40 wide receiver. Um, Your thoughts on Christian Kirk? Yeah, I mean, I think he's good, not great. You look at his targets per out run profile, some of his stuff historically, he's been a good player, but now he's being drafted like a pretty clear number one in a bad offense, sort of in – Maybe he's not quite up to I don't the think he's range. Is a clear one though, okay. I don't, and he might be a clear one. I don't know. It's it's interesting. Doesn't he go like right around like Alan Lazard and and I mean so maybe not a clear one, but with some of the weaker expected ones. Yeah, right. He's going around wide receiver forty two right now. Lazard's wide receiver thirty nine. Um, Robert Woods wide receiver forty four. Devonta Smith, wide receiver 40. Kadarius Tony, wide receiver 41. And then the rookies are even after that point, which for me, like, I have a hard time taking Kirk when, you know, Traylon Burks is still there, who we were just talking positively about. Maybe London's already off the board at that point, or he's right in that range, right? Um, I, I mean, I can see positive scenarios. I just, I guess I just don't think this, like, I would rather take, you know, Cooks if I was going to take this type of, number one on a bad offense kind of target volume play. Cause I know cooks is a, like, I'm pretty confident cooks is a, a high level receiver. I'm not even necessarily confident. Christian Kirk is a high level receiver in the NFL. I guess what I like about Kirk is I feel like I have him around 19% target share. And I mean, I think it could be like 24, 25 and I, I just, you know, given the deal that they gave him and it, the efficiency stuff's a concern. I mean, you go from Kyler Murray and that offense where he caught 75% of his balls last year, you know, his best yards per target by quite some margin at 9.5, not projecting nearly that, but like if Trevor Lawrence ends up being good, you know, we all thought he was going to be really like pretty like out of college, he was supposed to be extremely safe as a prospect, as a passer. If he's good and Kirk is the clear one, um, the, the tag seems too cheap, but I do see your, I also see your point about like, if you're talking like just like pure, pure upside, like, like the really high, like 95th plus percentile outcomes, those rookies definitely have, you know, I, a bit more juice that they're just really, really good talents. Yep. And I think the part of the, like the, you could see the 24% target share is really interesting. He's never had a 20% targets per out run, which is like sort of required to get into that type of range. Last year was at 18.6%. His best, career best is uh, 2019, actually three years ago, at 19.7%. He could maybe in a whole new offense with a lot less competition. The other guys that are running routes along with you are going to influence your target spread run a little bit. He's been running alongside guys like DeAndre Hopkins at times in his career. Um, and you look back at 2018, 2019, he had a little less competition. And he did have a little higher numbers. I just I don't know if he's a you know a 23, 24% target per out run kind of guy, which is sort of what's required to get to that type of market share. And behind him, we've got Marvin Jones. You've got him at 101 targets. I've got 85. I want that on the record that Ben is projecting an old for more targets than I am. Well, because you're projecting uh, another old for so many targets. <laughs> well, who's that? Uh, I guess not. I guess we're right in the uh, uh, Christian Kirk. I was calling an old. He's not even that old, but he's not even um zay jones we each have like targets in the 70s and then i've got like wide receiver four or five split out a little bit more between chanel and agnew 
I have I haven't... Treadwell in, in, in my wide receiver five spot in my projections only go to five, but like I think Treadwell was pretty good yeah. late. Agnew was pretty good late. This is another reason why I'm skeptical. Like they gotta cut somebody though, right? Do you think Treadwell gets cut? Because like they have six receivers. like it's, it feels like it's Visca that's the odd man out. Yeah, so I mean someone's likely getting the axe here. Right now we have it as Treadwell, but that's more of like I mean, I wouldn't say that's a strong take. It just kind of we need to cut someone I mean, out. He was cut him out. He was good last year for the stretch that he played with him. Like he finally showed yeah. some flashes, but yeah, he would make the most sense. Yeah, Agnew was kind of fun uh, for for that stretch before he got injured. Um, yeah. But yeah, and he, like, pro- always... he provides some special team stuff. I don't think he's probably the one that gets cut because, I mean, special teams. Any he, he caught some passes when needed to. Yeah, Marvin Jones is so cheap that in basketball, like if I'm building teams that I'm going for quantity over quality at wide receiver, I'm, I'll take him like mega late just because I think he's going to play enough to give you some usable weeks. Uh, in in managed leagues, yeah, I haven't touched Zay Jones or Marvin Jones. I just can't, you know foresee any sort of meaningful upside that I want those guys on my manager league team. Do you agree or disagree with that? I agree. I think it's really hard to, to kind of place the targets. That's part of the concern with Kirk. The one guy that I still have some interest in is LaVisca Chenault. I know it's a, a punchline at this point already, but oh, you look yeah, at the Urban dude, Meyer the year. dream is dead. You look at his rookie year, he got hurt right as he was starting to play more snaps and missed part of the second half of the year, we see rookies tend to to improve throughout the rookie year. He came back for a very, like the final four games, had a decent little stretch. Last year, he's playing under Urban Meyer. Didn't look explosive at all in the field. I test did not pass anything. Still was a real good producer in college. They're talking about using him and, you know, rushing a little bit more. Maybe he'll be filling some of this concern with, with uh, James Robinson's Achilles. Maybe all of it finally comes together under a good head coach. Probably not. But my Chenault thing is, I feel like sometimes we get these guys who, as a community, we all really like, and we think we see something that people outside of our bucket aren't seeing. I feel like that leads us to almost like the player more than we should. I feel like that kind of happened with Chenault. Whereas if you had almost any other wide receiver with his draft capital, who through two seasons was that like 6.8 yards per target and had her, you know, well, no one cares about season. two seasons, but I'll, I'll push back a little on it. His prospect profile was really good. He had like a 47% dominator rating season as a sophomore. Right. And we thought he was undervalued by the community at large, which I think sometimes leads us to overvalue the guy that we're, I, I don't know. No, I agree with that. Like, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm not saying he was a bad prospect. You, you just don't like that we roll clips on ship, ship chasing. I get it. I was just saying he's <laughs> like, if you took another comparable prospect that had his start to his career and was in this spot, I don't, you know, I don't even know if we'd be talking about him. Uh, I mean, again, I a little bit because his profile was was good. It was a three year profile. Had the really good dominator rating. His sophomore year, not as good as junior year. The reason I'm still willing to talk a little bit about him in year three is there is a precedent of basically two players that looked this bad through two years and had a really good third year, but they had the similar production profile in college. Devontae Adams, who everyone thought was the worst receiver in the league after two years, uh, was going at that very end of drafts. I don't think LaVisca Sean's going to be Devontae Adams. Tyler Boyd's the other one, had a really tough first two years, came back to be a really productive player. It wouldn't surprise me if Chenault 
again, injured in his rookie year, played under Urban Meyer in year two. You can, again, I don't think it's likely. Just saying, it wouldn't be that surprising based on his college production profile that there's yeah. a little bit there and he comes out and he's Tyler Boyd for the rest of his career and he actually wasn't as bad as everyone thinks right now. Yeah, it just, it hurts that they, you know, they brought in some guys in the offseason yes, to basically true. slot ahead of them. Yeah. Uh, another guy they brought in, not at wide receiver, but at tight ends, Evan Ingram. This is one of our bigger target discrepancies. Usually you're running a little hotter than me on targets, but I have 85 for Ingram. You only have 67. You have a little bit more of that going to Dan Arnold, 44 targets for Arnold. I only have 34. And then um, either you have more to the tight end three, or I just have more to I the don't. tight end group do. overall. I don't have anything really to man hurts or tight end three. It's but because I brought some more receivers. I shifted a decent amount, I think over to wide receiver, just, you know, spreading it among <laughs> a lot of different guys. I, I Arnold was pretty efficient in this offense last year. Uh, he's been quite a bit more efficient than Evan Ingram across their careers. Ingram once upon a time, really good prospect. He's the type of guy where I, I, I was on him early in his career, but it's been enough years of me thinking, we, you know, we just needed to see the right setting or whatever. We just really haven't seen it with him yet. He signed a solid, but not really amazing one year deal. He got like eight or 9 million one year in an off season where Jacksonville spent really big, you know, on Christian Kirk on Zay Jones on a lot of guys. I don't, I feel like people are, are a little too excited about Ingram. I don't even know that he's like, like, so I, I think Ingram and Arnold both might, might mix in here. I'm mm-hmm. not really buying into Ingram here. Yeah. Anthony Amico won't let me quit Evan Ingram. So quite frankly, I just blame him for the Evan Ingram projection, <laughs> but in all seriousness, I like the <laughs> biggest pro for Ingram. Like is he, so the pro for Ingram would be for a tight end, he's earned targets at a pretty strong clip. You know, 73 targets in 15 games last year, 109 and 16 the year before, 68 and 8 the year before, 64 and 11 the year before, 115 and 15 games as a rookie. The negative is he only has one season in his entire career with the yards per target of seven or more. And it was his sophomore season in 2018. And um, yeah, you definitely have to ask yourself is it the player? Is it the scheme? But for us, we his ADOT's always been absurdly low, or not always, but a lot of times it's been absurdly low for a guy who's athletic. So I mean, I I, I could buy into that a little bit for sure that it could be usage. I will say with our target share projection, we basically have him flat with ADP. So if he's going to beat ADP, like he needs to be earning the targets that we have, or just something happens with the new offense where all of a sudden he's you know, used in a higher A dot way or just just more efficient because the efficiency has right. been pretty darn bad. And while we have some uncertainty and hope this offense is better, like they were obviously pretty darn bad last season as well. And and I again, I, I mean, I, I'm not really on it. I can kind of see it the way that you're describing it. But for me, also, it's, it's you look at Dan Arnold, you're talking about some of Ingram's numbers. Like Arnold's drawn targets on a per out basis pretty well. Not amazing, but pretty well. And he's been really efficient after earning him his yards per target the last few years. And anytime he's had decent routes has been really strong. Like he's actually maybe good. So mm-hmm. that's kind of tough when that guy's behind you or with you or alongside you or whatever. It's, it's I don't think the runway is as clear for Evan Ingram is uh, that would be my, my argument. For sure. Uh, that's going to do it for us. The AFC South. We will be back with the NFC South final installment of the off season projections podcast later this week. 
uh, that'll be more exciting, I think, than the AFC South. This was kind of one of the uh, the, the duller divisions out there, but shout out Traylon Burks, league winner. Uh, you can catch more of my analysis at Establish the Run. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, Establish the Edge on iTunes, or you can watch it on YouTube on the Establish the Run channel. Make sure you like and subscribe there. It helps us keep doing stuff like this for free. You can find Ben's analysis at bengretch.substack.com. You can also find him on the Stealing Bananas podcast with the one and only Sean Siegel. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. We'll catch you later this week. Thank you.